morning, everyone. Good. Um, uh, this morning, uh, I, from time to time, um, preparing to speak is a real struggle. And I'm never quite sure why it is sometimes, but I, I have fought um, over this morning's message uh, and saying to Andrew Clark in the office, I was printing off my notes again just before we started as I've, as I've just rewritten this for the sixth time. Um, but I've, I've been fighting for something and I believe God's given me a word to share this morning as the result of, of that struggle. So I'd just like to pray. I mean, I'm particularly aware of my need for God's help just at this moment. Um, Father, thank you that you've you, you stand at the door and knock, and you put it in our hearts to open the door. And I pray that oh, we just keep opening. We just keep opening. And Lord, help us not to place any part of our lives off limits to you today. Because whenever you come in, and however far you you touch us. It's good. It's always good. Help us to offer ourselves. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, uh, that it would land and it would do us good. Amen. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. As you're turning there, um, there's just a couple of things I wanted to um, kind of underline or offer some comment on from, from what's already been said in the meeting. And it's not actually about the prophetic, although it was great. Um, it's one or two other things. One is um, just this thing about the Messiah from scratch that we're doing in a couple of weeks' time. Um, we run all kinds of different opportunities for people to encounter the living God. Uh, some of them people can just sort of rock up to at the last minute and in our thinking, in terms of inviting people, we can just kind of keep leaving it and waiting for an opportunity at the last moment to invite them. But this Messiah from scratch requires a little bit of organizing. Uh, we need to order enough copies of the score for everybody. And uh, I just want to make sure that if you're thinking, oh, I think I'd like to do that, or I think there's loads of us that know people who might like, well, we've been surprised. Uh, I've picked up a whole number of people who've gone, ooh, ooh, you're doing the Messiah. Ooh, I'd like to join in. I think there's loads of people who might yet like to join in, but I just want to say this will be a great week, better than the following week, <laughs> to invite people and to get people to sign up. We've got some preparation to do and to make sure it really works. Can we just, can, if you're thinking of someone, or you know someone who's in a choir or anything like that, it's an amazing opportunity. I believe God's going to touch people through this. Let's make this the week when we, when we sign up, issue invitations and so on, because after that, it's going to start to get a little bit less straightforward. Is that okay? Just wanted to make sure that that had landed. And I suppose the other thing is hearing all this stuff about Lille, South Oxfordshire Reading, which has been called The Turning, which is a, a new uh, pattern of uh, activity for some of God's people, of worshipping the Lord, going out on the streets. And I spoke to Yinka, 
who's the guy from Reading in whose church these things started. I spoke to him uh, last weekend as he was sat in the departures lounge at St. Pancras Station. And he said to me, we're going to see if this works in France. And uh, both of us honestly were saying to one another, well, we don't know, do we? We don't know, we don't know what will happen. And if I'm honest, he, he was like in a kind of place of, I don't know, but I expect something to happen. And I was in a place of, I don't know, and you know what, France is a hard place. They don't even speak English. Well, some of them do. You know, more of them speak English than we speak French. And um, there's something that God is doing which is changing expectations. There is a new normal emerging as God brings in a new season. Um, what I want to just acknowledge is it does bring questions and it does bring some turbulence. When new things come into being, old things are questioned. And I am confident that as we've been hearing, actually probably more weeks on than off, we've been hearing someone from the, the church here testifying, God did this on the streets and that on the streets. That will be raising questions for all of us about the pattern of our own Christian lives, what he might expect us to get involved in, and is all of this stuff genuine and all the rest of it. I just want to encourage you, ask away. Ask those questions. Don't feel awkward. Don't feel like the way this has to be is we all just say, oh, brilliant, Graham. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Because... Those who've, got, those who've now jumped in with both feet had the same questions and probably still have some of those questions. Let's talk about this. Let's say, what is it the Lord is doing? Hang on a minute. But that doesn't fit with this that I know. Let's talk about it. Let's learn together and let's hear together what God's doing. Okay, there's a couple of introductory things. I hope you found Romans 12. We are getting to the end of this series through the autumn called Abundant Life uh, and we've been looking at studies in Romans and particularly drawing out how we can have and why we can have confidence in the gospel. Uh, next week, uh, we have Richard Larkham with us. Some of you will know who he is. He spoke at our summer camp, uh, Transform in the Summer. It was hugely helpful in equipping people to have confidence in the gospel. A few things about him. Uh, he was running the training program at Bethel in Reading. That will give you one impression about him. Um, Another thing that might shape your understanding is his mother is Jennifer Reese Larkham. Some of you who've read her things. And for those of you that are really in the know about how these family things work, that means he is the brother of Sarah Williams. For those of you who know Sarah, who is a member of the church here for years and is a professor of history. Only person I know to have turned down a fellowship at All Souls, Sarah Williams, because they didn't have childcare, I think. Anyway, he's here next week, and we're finishing off the series. I just want to, and we'll be meeting with him morning and evening. So if you've not yet thought about what you're doing next Sunday evening, please be aware that there's opportunity to uh, engage further uh, here. But this morning, I'm picking up where Eileen left off last week. Uh, we've, over the weeks, looked at various passages from Romans chapters 1 through 8, which describe the gospel message. They have described for us that the events of Jesus' death and resurrection remain news today because news is 
uh, hearing about events that have a consequence for our lives. And though those were events many years ago, they still have consequences for our lives. And those are good consequences, hence the good news. Having looked at that and unpacked those consequences, last week Eileen began in Romans 12 to look at some of the application of that, to ask how then shall we live in the light of this good news? She read the first few verses of chapter 12 this morning. We're going to read those again and to the end of verse 9. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's where Eileen got to last week and going on. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though we are many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Now, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. In the beginning of verse 9, love must be sincere. Question that I have been grappling with this week in approaching these verses is this. What will be the focus and purpose of my life? What will be the focus and purpose of my life? Um, From these verses, I could speak about team, uh, community, mission, I could speak about the temptation to envy the gifts that others have. I could take time to unpack what each of these things mean. What is prophesying? What is leading? I have instead uh, been led this week to focus on the question of motive. The question of motive that comes to us out of these verses. There are seven different gifts listed here. Prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy. And like like me, you may perhaps have been taught about these seven different things being motivational gifts. Just so I know who I'm talking to, if anyone's, is that a teaching that people have picked up? Uh, Okay, I'm just noting that's people of a certain age. That's that's good. That's, That's okay. And 
the way this teaching goes is, well, God has put something in us that causes some people to value and desire, say, uh, prophecy, it's at the beginning of the list, more than other people. Now, so if you're one of those people who's kind of got a thing for prophecy, then have that as a focus. Get on and do it, because it's what God's put in you. And so on for all of the other gifts. And so if we ask this question, what will be the focus and purpose of my life, then the answer that comes is something like, your purpose is to do what you feel like doing. Because God's put a desire in you, and you get to do that. So your focus and your purpose is to do what you feel like doing. And uh, that's very nice. What I've been grappling with this week is the question of, but is it true that my purpose is to do what I feel like doing in God? There we are. It makes it sound more spiritual, doesn't it? And I've come this morning to say to you, it's actually not true that we get to do what we feel like doing. And let me explain that in a couple of different ways. Well, the first is this. Looking at each of these gifts in turn, if we know our scriptures well, then we will quickly spot that none of these are optional. This isn't a pick and mix amongst which you get to do the ones you like and leave the licorice or whatever it is you know you don't like in the, the pick and mix. It's not like that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 says, in turn, you can all prophesy. So actually, whether you feel like doing it or not, you can. Serving. It's not an option to serve or not to serve. Jesus himself said, those of you who wish to be great, whoever wants to be great, must be your servant with teaching. Hebrews 5, the writer of the Hebrews, laments the fact that, that the whole of the people to whom he's writing aren't yet teachers because they've not yet embraced the word of God adequately in their own lives to be able to pass it on to others. Hebrews also says to encourage one another daily. Jesus says, as was, um, was a, a Helen quoted this, freely you've received, freely give. We're all told to go and make disciples. It's the Great Commission. And uh, discipling people means leading people. And Jesus says, again, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So this isn't a pick and mix kind of a list. There's something else going on other than looking through and seeing which one I like or which one comes most easily. There's something else going on. As I've grappled with this this week, I found myself drawn to some verses in Luke's gospel, which are not so much like a, a knife through butter, but they cut through this. I, the phrase that came to mind is more like a kind of lightsaber through butter. There's a kind of, you know, Jesus does that sometimes. Like you're wondering about things, and there's a word that just goes straight through. It's one of those. I mean, 
Sometimes you wonder whether Jesus could ever have said some of these things, and this is one of them. Luke 7, sorry, Luke 17 and verse 7 says, Suppose one of you had a servant. Now, pause there. There's two words that are commonly used for someone taking a serving role. There are two words commonly used in the New Testament. They are diakonos, which is translated always as a servant or sometimes as minister. And there's another word, which is doulos. And doulos was someone who was born as a slave, sometimes called a bond slave. They were born into slavery. And here, that's the word that's used. There was a man uh, who, well, suppose one of you had, suppose one of you had a bond slave. Suppose one of you lived in a household where there was someone who'd been born into that household, who when they were born, they were born into it as a slave. Just suppose that, Jesus says. And of course, to his initial audience, they didn't have to think hard, that they were all kinds of people around them living in those kinds of households. Slavery had not yet been abolished. Suppose one of you had a slave plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to that slave when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? And would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Implication, no. So, you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Jesus is here gunning for the idea that God owes us anything. More broadly, he is taking down the idea that our good service wins us any rights or entitlements or privileges. He's saying we don't get to choose what we do for God. We don't get to choose what we do for God. And not only that, but when we do what God commands... It doesn't place him under any obligation to us. When we do what he commands, it doesn't earn us any extra favors. God is under no obligation to give us a little thank you card or something. We've just done what we should have done. There's a quality of service here that I think is alien to our culture. Strong strong expectation that we do what someone else wants straightforwardly it's so not about what i feel like doing so romans 12 prophesy serve teach encourage but not because you feel like it rather because it's the master's command when he feels like it, prophesy. When he feels like it, serve. When he feels like it, teach. Do you get it? It's a different orientation 
for the whole of life. This sounds harsh. It may sound difficult, but there is something, and this is what I praying God would help us get hold of this morning. There is something wonderful in this that utterly transforms life for the better. Romans is about this gospel, this good news, and Paul starts fleshing out the consequences of it. Life is better because of what Jesus did for us. And you see, when God became man and dwelt amongst us as Jesus of Nazareth, he came and said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, God made man, Jesus chose to serve. He was a, he was a volunteer servant. It was his own volition, his own will to come and place himself at other people's disposal. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross, not my will be done, Father, but yours. He submitted himself. And just the goodness that flows out from that choice not to do what he wanted, not to do what he wanted, but to serve others. We need, we can't avoid turning to Philippians chapter 2 at this point. Wonderful, wonderful chapter of scripture in which this very fact about Christ is described. In verse 5, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of of a servant. And it's there again. That is, that is not a diaconous servant. That is this doulos. Jesus took that place, that place without right or privilege or entitlement. He took the place of a person who is constantly told what to do and doesn't earn thanks for doing so. That's the place that Jesus took, taking the very nature of a slave being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is our God. He is a volunteer servant. Volunteers, he chooses to serve. He chooses to stoop down in order to make other people great. Now, here's the thing. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. So if he is a volunteer servant, then there's a privilege that is available for us to take up. It's a privilege of living as one of God's children. We have the privilege that we too are empowered to choose to serve. That's something that we get to do as God's children. We get to choose to serve. We get the opportunity to pray like Jesus prayed. We get to say, not my will. What an amazing thing to be able to be like Jesus. Not my will. Wow, I'm like Jesus. But God, your will be done. 
So I wanted to somehow bring this into focus. And this opportunity that we have to volunteer in serving others is something that has been perverted again and again and again in human history. I just want to draw attention to two incredible perversions of the whole idea of service and servanthood. Um, the one of them, and the kind of most obvious go-to place, is this. Slavery in America, which we celebrate William Wilberforce, great Christian hero in this country, campaigning for change. It's the Republican Party, wasn't it, in the States that campaigned for the end to slavery there. This kind of slavery is perhaps the worst form of slavery that the world has ever seen. Uh, to be a slave means that you are owned and you have no choice about what to do. And in America, it took particularly brutal forms in many places and people were wrenched from one part of the world to another and there was tremendous suffering. Now, I'd be surprised if we had any slaves here this morning. Uh, there are probably people who either um, will have slaves in their slavery in their heritage. Quite possibly some of us have slave owning in our heritage. Um, I bet there's quite a few people here this morning, whatever our heritage, I bet there's quite a few people here this morning who feel that there's a little bit of being like a slave that you can really relate to, which is feeling like you have no choice about what you do. That, that feeling, sometimes that reality, you know, I have, I have no choice about what I do. For some people, that will be to do with work. Glumly attending work whilst dreaming of a better life, but feeling constrained to this. I have no choice. This is what I have to do. Don't like it. Don't want it. Didn't choose it. Wouldn't choose it now. Can't imagine I'll ever choose it in the future. But it's what's given to me. It's what I've got to do. Glum. Acceptance, perhaps. Despair, perhaps. Um, those who have the opportunity and privilege of caring for young children might also understand this feeling in a slightly different way. Um, it's, it's no coincidence that at some point every parent will ask their child, what did your last slave die of? Uh, usually sometime around the point when you're in the midst of picking up their stuff after them for the umpteenth time and they come and demand some favorite snack or something or whatever. And you go, really? How did I end up being a slave with a master who was a child? Right? <laughs> How did that happen? So some of you will understand that. Um, it's nothing like this kind of slavery, but it's our reality. For some of us, it's our reality that we feel, when we think of service, we think, I'm already being stretched beyond what I wanted. So what's with this vision for servanthood thing? Here's another really different part of human history. The French Revolutionary. The French Revolution threw off the masters and mistresses who told people what to do. And with a cry of liberty, equality, and fraternity, 
they cried on the streets of Paris, no one, no one will tell me what to do. Not anymore. We've had those people and their day is gone. No one's going to tell me what to do. It's a spirit that has pervaded Western culture. No one's going to tell me what to do. And actually, um, if, if sometimes I do agree to do what someone else asks of me, if I do that sometimes, I'm very clear that it's, uh, it, I'll do it as long as I get something in return. So if you pay me, I'll, I'll work for you. Or if you, if you thank me and love me and help me feel good about myself, then, then I might do something for you. Or if in serving in a particular way, there's an opportunity for promotion, like I can get on in life. If I go and be in, uh, an intern in a company somewhere, then I might get on a career. Well, I might serve if it's going to get me somewhere. It's such a shame, isn't it? It's such a shame that we see our serving as some kind of exchange where we have to get something back. What a shame. Because there's an image of God in us in which we know that we could be like Jesus and just volunteer our service and just do it. And somehow we miss that wonderful opportunity by saying, well, you know, I might do it. What, what are you offering? What am I, what, where is this taking me? Is this volunteer opportunity, I mean, in the church, it might be, is this ministry opportunity going to take me towards my calling? Well, maybe not. Maybe, it, maybe it's just what God wants you to do. And maybe, maybe it doesn't go anywhere, very obvious. There's a quality that Jesus had. He says, it's not, not my will, but yours be done. I have a third historical illustration, which brings us back to the scripture and brings us back towards God's heart and God's character. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 15. It's in Exodus as well, but we'll look at Deuteronomy, uh, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 15. Um, This is, this is a point in the... You see, what would happen sometimes uh, at this period of history was people would become like thoroughly, absolutely poor and destitute, would have sold the land that they had in order to get any money for food and then run out of that money and not found work and be utterly, utterly destitute. And at that point, one of the few, well, perhaps the only remaining option would be to go to someone who did have some money and who did have some land and say, well, look, I haven't got anything, but would it be okay if I came and just, if I just, just gave myself to work for you? Like, could you just have me, please? Would you, would you have me in your household? And through that, they would become a slave. They would be, become owned, but they would have come and laid themselves and said, would you please own me? Such was their desperation. So that's the kind of thing that was going on. And across the ancient world, once people did that, then they would be slaves for life 
and their children would be slaves, and, and that would be how it would go on. For the Hebrews, God's law was different. They had a principle of jubilee and of redemption, which said, actually, the longest period that someone can come and slave in that way is seven years. When the seven years come round, you set them free. Like Whatever might go on by way of people putting themselves into slavery doesn't last forever. Freedom comes after a period of time. It's God's preferred way of things to be. And it's in that context that we get Deuteronomy 15 and verse 12. It says, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you, that's the process I've just described, coming and putting themselves there and saying, would you own me? If a man or a woman sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year, you must let him go free. This was a massive contrast with other nations. And, look, and when you release him, don't send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why I'm giving you this command today. So there's a command to be generous, to uh, have compassion on those who are being set free. And then this is the key for us this morning. Verse 16. If your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl, it's like a little, um, a bit like a nail, and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. It's a little picture here for us of a there we go, of a volunteer servant. The, uh, those who rose up in the French Revolution understood themselves to be revolutionary. Uh, it seems to me that this choice is even more revolutionary. This is a picture for us of choosing, because of our love, to give up our right to self-determination, to give up our freedom to choose what we will do out of love and knowing it's good for us, we cease to um, think of ourselves only and we say, I will no longer withhold or withdraw my service. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to give myself, commit myself for life to be your servant. The question I ask is, what will be the focus and purpose of our lives? I'd like to suggest an answer to that question is that the focus and purpose that I want for my life is that I will serve others. I'll serve God and I will serve others. I, I don't want the focus and purpose of my life to be, where am I going to get to in a career? Where am I going to get to in my relationships? How wealthy will I become? What influence and impact? How much will I be known? I don't want that to be the focus of my life. I know it's not my purpose. My purpose is to do with glorifying God, not to do with gaining glory for myself. And that is worked out through service. I get to serve other people. 
in uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, I had just those few, first few words earlier on the screen from verse 9 where it said, um, what did it say? In, it said, uh, love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. I um, wanted to put that in slightly different words for you to say the same thing. There's a command here, genuinely love people. Like genuinely love people. And then service of others is not a duty that we have to perform. It's rather an amazing opportunity to work out our love for people as that love compels us to serve. I've said a whole number of times this morning, God himself is a volunteer servant. Well, there's another truth from which that springs. The deeper truth is that God is love. The reason that God is a volunteer servant is because God is love, and out of that love, it compels him to do other people good. His love is so strong that he doesn't spend time thinking about himself. His love is so strong that he's ever looking out for people and thinking of ways to serve them, finding ways to sustain their life. Put them before himself. I'm going to finish in just a moment by putting a prayer on the screen. And some of you will know this is a prayer I use with some regularity. Uh, It's the Methodist Covenant prayer, which is bang on message for this. And it's been so meaningful to me. I first met God at the age of seven with this prayer being prayed by people around me. Uh, There's a strong Methodist tradition of serving other people. There's a Methodist quote that goes like this, do all of the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. It's like, I like that. It doesn't leave a lot of space, does it? It's like, just, just give yourself. Just, just give yourself. There's nothing more complicated than that. Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism, had, a, had this prayer to go with it. I'm going to read it through and then allow for a moment or two to reflect on it. And then we're going to have some way of responding together, probably in song. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me. With whom you will, put me to doing and put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Let's take a moment to, in our own minds, return to to where the band were leading us earlier, saying, God, would you come in? 
Jesus, as ever, knocking at the door, seeking greater access. Um, For different ones of us, this call to service involves laying something specific down. Uh, It's not just a general thing. There's some specifics here, like the... Whether, yeah, so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring to mind once more those doors on which you're knocking or perhaps the things that you want us to let go of, the things you want us to take up, whichever it may be. Again, we say, Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way. Not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I want to be your servant. Lord, I want to be your servant. Pledge myself to your service. Lord, I pray that you give each one of us specific things that we, we can offer to you in our worship today. There's this thing, Lord, I'll give to you. There's this thing I'll, I'll take up, Lord. It's just Lord, whatever you want. Lord, if you want me to prophesy, Lord, I'll prophesy. If you want me to teach, Lord, I'll teach. If you want me to encourage, I'll encourage. If you want me to give, Lord, I'll do it generously. I really will. If you need to show mercy, Lord, I will show mercy. I won't hold things against people. I will show mercy, Lord, exactly as you please.